Coming up this hour, we're going to talk about churches reopening, a sourdough bread, and then we're going to have an interview with author Ruth Graham coming up next year on The Common Good. Everybody, welcome to The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. Happy to have you with us on this Tuesday. Ian, I've been practicing all day that it's Tuesday, because as you saw in an earlier email, I can't get off of Monday right now. You're probably <laughs> not alone in that. I almost forgot to take out the trash yesterday, because I normally do it Sunday, and all my rhythms are off. Hashtag yes. first world problems. Exactly, exactly. Well, we're glad to have you joining us today. You can find us on Facebook at the Common Good Radio Show. Uh, find us online uh, at 1160hope.com, Twitter and Instagram at Common Good Talk Podcast, wherever it is you get your podcast. Subscribe, rate, review. We, ta- we, we always start, especially when the weather's bad, we start with bad weather. So I feel like summer might be here. We might have turned a corner today. Are you out in the uh, treehouse today? I, I'm not. There's still rain in the forecast. I just didn't want to risk it. Oh, I didn't know there was rain in the forecast. I was all excited about today. <laughs> oh, sorry. I mean, not a cloud in the sky. And... <laughs> Aren't you facing a window right now? So this is too much information, like too inside baseball. But I'm up in my room, okay? Mm-hmm. But I have the I have the blinds drawn because our my wife and I's bedroom is a converted old attic, okay? So it's converted into a room which is awesome, except when it first gets hot, before we put in the air conditioner window unit, it gets really hot. <laughs> so Sorry, I'm like man, sitting I, in the darkness. I, I, I fell asleep halfway through that story. What were you saying? <laughs> I told you it was too much detail. Yeah, uh, anyway, glad to have you joining us today. Hey, here's what I want to start talking about. What, uh, especially in our worlds, is all over Facebook and Twitter, and that is uh, – should churches be reopening? And so uh, right before we went off the air on Friday, I believe, is when President Trump got up and said, uh, it's time for churches to reopen. I'm going to override the governors, which, <clears throat> as we spoke about that day, he actually doesn't have the power to do. But he was trying to apply some pressure, I suppose. Um, and now uh, I don't know what it's like in your world, man, but I feel like it is exponentially increased people in my church and outside my church asking, like, are you opening now? What's happening now? Right, right. Uh, is that so that is what you're finding as well in your world? Oh, for sure. It, we're in different circumstances, though. Like, I'm not ultimately in charge. So that is I get a lot of questions for sure. Yep. But I will say our leadership has done a tremendous job. I think there was an email from our leadership less than an hour after Trump made that statement on Friday yep. uh, to all the staff. Like, hey, here's what we know. Here's kind of how we're answering these questions. Here's the resources. Here's like it was it, it was really impressive. So, yeah, the the leadership has been on the ball with like making sure that the stuff that we're communicating to the church right. as a whole is unified and uh, it all makes sense. We had that exact talk as a staff today over Zoom going, yeah. uh, I'm I'm not so much caring what you personally believe. I want to have a unified front about what the church is going to say. Right. <laughs> and uh, we have an elder meeting tonight in which I'm sure this will come up uh, as well. Um, but I'm curious. You tweeted and Facebook some stuff. I do follow you on both <laughs> social media aspects. He, Brian uh, is very careful never to like or comment on any of it, though. <laughs> he regularly brings up like, oh, yeah, I follow you. And I'm like, yeah, and interact exactly zero. Can I can I just tell you, you might think I'm a bad person for this. Uh, I just around this conversation we're having now, real, but it's so and it's so um, 
politicized and people are so fired up and emotional about it that I just had my fill of Facebook this week. Like I couldn't take it anymore. I get and it. I went, I went on a binge of unfollowing about 80% of the people in my <laughs> friend group. <laughs> oh yeah. I don't think you're alone in that. I think a lot of people have been doing stuff like that. Yeah. You made the cut though. Don't worry. You're still there. <laughs> Good. I'm glad you can still follow me f- in silence. Yes. Oh no. Now I'm going to start. I usually like it when you put up pictures of your kids and stuff, but, uh, <laughs> So you did, you posted something, I'm doing it off the top of my head, something about, uh, you know, the church not being a building, the church has never been shut down, I'm, I'm getting these wrong, but essentially that, I'm curious what made you feel the impetus to, to post uh, something like that around that message, and what are you hoping the direction of this conversation goes in churches, not just with pastors, but people out there listening who are like, man, I want to open up my church this week or right. whatever else. Well, and that's, and I added the comment on the Facebook one about I, the statement was something like churches are essential. Buildings aren't churches. That's and then, right. Underneath it though, asterisks. I was like, I do miss meeting in ours though. Like I wanted people to know I'm like, you know, I'm not unsympathetic to this longing and desire. I, I, I mean, I'm a very social creature. I really, really miss not gathering in person with our church. And I think there's a ton of theological significance to the yeah. bodily presence, the enfleshment of being together. And we've talked about that since the show started. So both of those things aside, and I think Stetzer's article here that you have from Christianity Today is really, really good. But for me, it, it does sometimes feel like we put all of our eggs in the we have to occupy our building basket at the detriment of a couple of other things. One, potential safety of our neighbor to uh, what it means to live on mission, regardless of whether or not we have an address, which is a reality that much of the global church lives by anyway. So like for me, I was trying to create some equilibrium. They're like, yes, I oh, mean, I so miss seeing you guys. And I would lo- I cannot wait for the day that we all gather together. There's still so much about this that we don't know about the disease that we don't know about, you know, herd immunity that we don't know. There's a lot of unknown still. And for us to simply make the only target, the only bullseye, let's just get back into our buildings. To me, again, is elevating an aspect of the body of Christ, maybe over some other equally important aspects. And that's where it starts to get a little tricky for me. Absolutely. So the, you, you referenced the Stetzer article at Stetzer wrote at Christianity Today, uh, as he has just been prolifically writing. And he, he references both Illinois and California probably feeling some pressure. I don't know if you saw this because I know you've had a busy day of meetings like I have, but I just saw it right before we came on. Uh, California actually already changed their, they changed some of their dynamics today for churches. Yeah. Um, right. Uh, up to 100, I believe. So it's going to be very interesting about what happens in our state, which is uh, trending towards the 50 number, but we're not there yet. Um, but uh, Stetzer's point in his article is this. He says, we do not think that Chicago churches need to open now this weekend. There's too much community spread. It might be weeks or months, but it can't be forever. Right now, there's no end date. There's been communication with businesses and with academia, but not much communications with church leaders. We think that's an essential step. So he's saying, please get us into the conversation. Please get us into the conversation. Uh, what would you say? And I know you kind of said this already, but to the person maybe in your church or listening out there who is like, I don't care. Just open the door. Uh, let us all figure it out. Uh, take us back to the whole love your neighbor part and how that plays into this, which we've been talking about from the very beginning. Yeah, I mean, obviously, we're divided on this in a pretty yeah. intense kind of way, but 
what what I what I can assert, I guess, from a seat of leadership and knowing that most leaders I know are doing the very best they can to navigate this. Like no one's looking to like, well, good, good for me. I don't have to go into a building anymore. Like most (laughs) pastors I know are grieving and are missing their people like dreadfully and are feeling unsure of themselves. I, I, I read this Eisenhower quote yesterday. Even I think he said, um, he said plans plan, something like plans are a waste, but planning is essential. Something like that. And he's like, you know, we can do the best that we, and you know, even at community, we have probably six or seven different contingency plans, but we don't know if any of those are really going to pan right. out. What we do know though, is that care for neighbor. And if there is even just a shred of evidence that this thing is still as dangerous as some are saying it is one of the ways that we can actively love people in our community is by being strategically cautious and to not be reckless. And I don't think anyone's necessarily proposing for us to be right. reckless. I just, it is it really the Christ follower, the core of being a Christ follower, I think means, uh, at least in some sense, I look a little bit less to my own rights and privileges, the things I want. Yeah. I look more to the rights and privileges and interests of other people. And sometimes that maybe means sacrificing, not doing the thing that I would rather do, you know? That's right. That's well put. Uh, we're going to continue this conversation coming up next. Ruth Graham, she is a staff writer at Slate. Uh, who just wrote an article. Her last article was called How Churches Are Thinking Through Their Reopening Plans. So Ruth Graham's going to join us next here on The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Welcome back to The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. Glad to have you joining us on this Tuesday afternoon. Well, we uh, we really enjoy uh, the conversations Ian and I are able to have on this show. But what we most enjoy is to be able to bring on guests and hear from some other people. And with that in mind, we are really excited to be joined uh, by a staff writer at Slate. That is Ruth Graham. Ruth, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. Absolutely. Why don't you uh, introduce yourself to our audience in any way you see fit? Sure. Um, well, you, you said I'm a staff writer at Slate. I'm reporting mostly on religion and within that mostly on um, Christianity and evangelical Christianity in particular. So that's my beat. And it's certainly taken an interesting turn during the virus. <laughs> yeah, no yes. kidding. We've actually referenced a number of your articles over the last month or so. And one you wrote recently, the headline reads, services will be a completely touchless experience, how churches are thinking through their reopening plans. Brian and I are actually both pastors thinking through exactly that. Can you talk us a little bit about this article and what some of your main takeaways were? Yeah, um, it was really interesting. I, I am a churchgoer and I've been um, going to to church um, and, and thinking about like, boy, what would it look like to be really back and not just on Zoom anymore? Right, um, right. So I wanted to talk to pastors all across the country and they it was really interesting telling you really different things some of them have already reopened um some are you know not going to be ready until july or august or later um but the takeaways were you know sort of having to think through the church service from top to bottom so everything from seating to greeters to offering um to singing was a big one that one's really hard to grapple with you know potentially going without congregational singing for a long time so yeah, kind of everything from top to bottom has to be rethought. 
Yeah, as uh, Ian and I were just talking in the last segment with uh, President Trump the other day saying, you know, I want to override the governors and I want churches reopened. That kind of raised uh, the uh, the emotions around it. Do you think in your reporting, do you think that's going to cause people to try to open up more quickly? Uh, And are you surprised by the emotions, particularly around churches reopening? I'm not surprised by the emotions around it because church for a lot of people is a really, you know, kind of the center point, the focal point of their week. And it's a hugely important part of their spiritual lives, their social lives. Um, So I'm not surprised. Um, It's really unfortunate how it has become this political question instead of Mm. a spiritual question, a logistical question, all these other things. I hope, I mean, I, when President Trump made that announcement on Friday, at least as of that point, you know, even pastors on his evangelical advisory board said, well, actually, we're not ready to open this Sunday. So, <laughs> yeah. you know, and everyone I spoke to was really approaching it with a lot of care and thoughtfulness. Mm. Um, so I think it's possible to have kind of an urgency about reopening without rushing into it before, you know, your community is ready for it or before you've been able to take the, the practical steps needed right. to do it safely. So, right. I, you know, I, I'm, I believe probably the majority of pastors will be doing it in a careful way. Okay, so a question that I want to ask you that I think you have a unique voice and perspective in because Brian and I tend to come at it as pastors, as church leaders. So that means with it comes a certain level of uh, we've been thinking about this decision for a long time. And then it's often the decision that we or a team of people get to make. How would you help advise people who are listening, who are church goers, church attenders, who are maybe frustrated with their church or their they're frustrated with what they see other people saying and they're wanting to go back or they don't think we should go back. How would you encourage people to navigate all the mm-hmm. kind of disagreements as we kind of inch towards eventually going back? Boy, I mean, it depends, you know, it depends kind of what direction the frustration is running. in. I right. guess, I, I guess the, the global point to make is that this is a decision that has to be made, you know, in community, obviously there's going to be elder boards and, you know, pastors will be ultimately making these decisions or denominations and, all of that, but it it is a decision that's going to happen in community. And, you know, we all know that not everyone, you know, in a church agrees with every single decision a church makes. And I'm sure that that's going to be true for this one too. Um, You know, everyone's, everyone's doing their best. And if a church reopens and you're not ready to go back, you don't have to go. And Mm -hmm. likewise, there's no shortage of opportunities to worship in, you know, in an, uh, given a different way, but uh, you know, there, there are many, many, opportunities to worship online at this point too mm. so i you know i hope no one feels like it's sort of all or nothing in either direction right yeah right. i, I want to ask you kind of a different question away from the church reopening question I, i've wondered i was actually having read a lot of your stuff uh being a churchgoer be, being a christ follower and reporting on religion is that hard to navigate for you is that hard for your faith what is that like for you um you know i think of it as really only and advantage because it means you know that I'm in some way part of the community I'm reporting on and I you know when I'm in my capacity as a reporter that's what I'm doing my job is to tell the truth and be fair and accurate but I certainly think that you know in terms of fairness um that you know that that brings something to it I've I went to an evangelical college and yeah like you said I'm an active church member now and I think that really only helps my work it doesn't always make me friends, <laughs> you know, um, depending on the nature of the reporting. Um, right. But for me, it's been nothing but an advantage. Great. So what do you think is the future of the church then? As someone who 
reports from a journalistic perspective, it seems like a ton of people are trying to predict how this is going to look a year or five years from now. And, it, you know, I, I think the best experts that we listen to all say, hey, this is all still just conjecture. We don't really know. But like, what's your best guess thinking out like a year or two years or five years out? Like, How is this going to shift the dynamic of the local church? Yeah, it's hard to make kind of a one-size-fits-all prediction. Um, some other reporting I've done that was pretty alarming to me is how this is imperiling small community churches mm-hmm. as opposed to larger churches with a lot of sort of extra wiggle room in their budgets. Um, you know, the, the mega churches, you know, they have the money on hand. They have the capacity to put on a pretty slick, you know, Zoom or Facebook live show. A lot of the smaller churches don't have the financial margins, you know, they have an older donor base who may be wary to come back, who may be wary to give via app. Um, All of those things are really going to be disadvantages for um, older and smaller churches. So that's one of the things I'm keeping my eye on. And that, you know, that one thing that does concern me. Hmm. Yeah. And Ian, I I thought I asked a good question before having you speak to people who aren't pastors. Maybe as you've spoken to so many pastors, uh, what would your, what would your encouragement or advice be to pastors right now as we navigate something none of us went to school for, none of us were really prepared for? Uh, what would kind of your encouragement to pastors be right now? Well, one thing I've been thinking about a lot is that this is kind of the moment that church was made for. I mean, people mm-hmm. are really spiritually hungry right now. Um, that doesn't mean that all churches are handling this perfectly or that they will in the coming months. And But I, I do think that there is a real hunger right now. We're seeing that with a lot of the desperation to reopen. I mean, some of that, it might not be happening in good faith and maybe more sort of politically tinged, but I think a lot of it is driven by the fact that people are realizing how important that weekly, you know, spiritual touchstone and, you know, opportunity is. And they're, they miss that. Um, and it's also a crisis. It's a crisis. And that is the kind of thing that, you know, reawakens people spiritually. So I think it's an opportunity for the church, as well as obviously a huge challenge. Absolutely. Well, Ruth, we're super grateful for you to join us all the way from New Hampshire. We didn't even tell people you're out in New Hampshire. Uh, you can right. find Ruth's articles at uh, slate.com. We would encourage you to go there, uh, particularly this one. Services will be completely touchless experiences. A great article that we're really grateful that you came on to talk more about. So, Ruth, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you very much. Absolutely. Well, you're listening to The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Welcome back to The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. Really glad to have you joining us on this Tuesday afternoon. Uh, Find us on Facebook at The Common Good Radio Show, online at 1160hope.com, Twitter and Instagram at Common Good Talk. And uh, podcast, get your, get our podcast wherever it is you get your podcast. If you're a podcaster, we would love for you to take a moment and subscribe, rate, and review. That really does help us, and we are grateful for those of you who do that. Uh, an article at the Gospel Coalition called Sourdough and the Spiritual Discipline of Pace. We're going to talk about that spiritual discipline coming up here in a second. But first, Ian is going to tell us about Thrivent. Yeah, man. Let me tell you about Thrivent. All right. So I've been uh, I've been a Thrivent member for almost eight years. Thrivent.com is where you would go to learn more. Super grateful for them. They're a Fortune 500 company that's been around for more than 100 years. Incredible organization. You can also find for career opportunities that you're interested in, Thrivent.com slash careers. There's a whole bunch of opportunities 
And you don't even need to have a background in finance. Just check out thriving.com slash careers. Plus, they're hosting a whole heap of free webinars, things to kind of help us navigate quarantine life from like homeschooling to leading in a crisis and everything in between. Mm-hmm. We're sharing those on the Facebook page, but you can also go to their f- Facebook page and learn more. And I highly recommend that you do that. Wonderful. Wonderful. Oh, wow. uh, so this next article, Gospel Coalition, it starts with a pun that is right up your alley. Mm. So it's, uh, again, entitled Sourdough and the Spiritual Discipline of Pace. It starts with this line, sourdough is on the rise. I don't get it. Just let that sit in there for a second. (laughs) I don't get it. It says, though the COVID-19 pandemic has incited fear, panic, and partisan rancor, it has also revived older traditions that take time to cultivate and master, like bread baking. Many of us have decided to use the extra time in our hands in quarantine for baking sourdough bread. So I've heard that this is a thing, Ian. Do you know people or maybe yourself who have taken up the age-old baking of sourdough bread over the quarantine? Do you know anyone doing this? I don't associate with people who make sourdough bread, Brian. That's not. <laughs> no, yeah, I know a lot of people. I am still baffled by this uh, populace, this populace of people who have all this extra time on their hands. <laughs> I am not in that camp at all. I think it's people who like have more of that. You know, like maybe you used to be out at night, but now you're home at night. I haven't. I don't talk to a lot of people who are like, man, I have no work to do at all. Right. Uh, so I'm not sure there's people making sourdough bread in the middle of the day here, but um, <laughs> but maybe. So the uh, the article goes on to say, major news outlets have taken note of sourdough surge in popularity. The Washington Post reported on yeast and flour shortages. CNN published a piece about baking sourdough was helping people cope with anxiety. At one point in history, all bread was sourdough, which was a dough made of flour and water fermented without yeast for baking bread. I just learned what that was. I did not know that's what sourdough was. Uh, <laughs> were you? Could could you have defined that right there? Or no, is that just me? Uh, I mean, would it make you feel better if I said no? It would. Then then would. no. Okay, thank you. Uh, <laughs> bread experts uh, attribute leavening bread to the Egyptians who used wild yeast, and so it goes on with that. Um, but it says this, this article says this, but our world went and got itself in a big hurry. And by the 20th century, commercial yeast rose to prominence. Mm. The speed and convenience of modern bread baking, uh, making rendered the time intensive process of sourdough baking, largely a thing of the past. And so here's what it's going to go. And we'll read some more of this, but it's going to say that now in the time of pandemic, we've got a different pace to our lives. Um, and I, I guess I would ask you, because you made the comment before, who are all these people with more time? Do you feel like you have, uh, is at least your pace different? And are you actually finding it more fast pace, slower pace, or just different in your life right now? Uh, it's probably different. I mean, I think for the first, gosh, probably the first six to eight weeks, it legitimately felt faster. It felt like I had more meetings, mm. more deadlines, more expectations, more content to create. You know, we were trying to really kind of provide some level of devotional pastoral content with a yeah. pretty intense level of regularity online. So I'm having to, that includes like prayer and writing and editing and then right. filming or you're going Facebook live or, you know, so I felt like a lot of that was just added to my plate. Um, but it also felt different because it's obviously it's in front of a screen. I find myself like waking up a lot in the middle of the night, thinking about work projects right? more than I had in the past. That was already a thing I did, but it felt, exacerbated plus we didn't have great weather so like my family was feeling all on gotcha. top of each other and my kid you know so some of that was contributing to the sense of pace i'm sure 
Uh, but with the nicer weather and getting a chance to go on some walks with the kids and that kind of that has certainly helped, I think, alleviate some of the the stress. But it still doesn't feel like a respite to me at all. That's right. OK, I, this article is going to take it from a standpoint that most people are slowing down. OK, so it's saying baking sourdough for me is not only a culinary delight, but something that teaches me what I call the spiritual discipline of pace. This COVID-19 lockdown is slowing us down, but the slow pace of sourdough in particular is teaching me the following. You know why I love the Gospel Coalition, because they love to end in a list. Yeah, you love lists. Uh, so they're going to give us three. Uh, how about let me uh, I'll read them and you uh, you can react to each one. Number one. I must slow down and care for something that, if left alone, will ruin. I share the starter feeding duties with my two oldest daughters. Feeding the starter takes all of three minutes, but we must devote ourselves to feeding it or it will die. Feeding teaches us the joy of commitment, of sticking with something, even if it gets boring or monotonous. We need this discipline in our fidgety age of distraction. What do you think of that? Totally agree. Okay. Fidgety age of distraction. I like that description because that that kind of does sum up our culture. Number two, God's goodness can be found all over the place if we take time to look for it. The slow pace of sourdough affords me and my daughters time to bond over the glories of bread baking. We marvel over the rise of the leaven. We take turns stretching the dough. We revel in the morning fragrance of bread in the oven. We, quote, taste and see that the Lord is good. Uh, let me ask the question this way for you. Do you have trouble even connecting with God when your pace is hectic? Uh, yeah. I mean, I think I'm one of the weird creatures that does like a fast pace. I like, do you? Okay. I do like pedal to the metal. I like high octane. I like, I like that kind of do or die. Um, so I, I would say, I think there is a way to connect with God in the midst of some of that, especially, you know, like we were talking at the beginning of this quarantine, sort of the adrenaline, um, but I, I tend to go too far in that direction, and I do find that my heart rests a whole lot more when I establish patterns of simplicity and right. Sabbath and rest and discipline. So, yeah, I, I'd say by and large, it isn't ideal, but I always feel like st- any kind of activity gets a bum rap. Like, well, you can't connect with God while you're doing stuff. And like, well, I don't right. think that's true either. I think we can absolutely connect with God when we're partnering with him, you know, in redeeming the world. But, yeah, rest is certainly something that I have to work at. <laughs> number three the last one on this list slower cadences in life are better than convenience modern convenience can be a cadence killer we too often opt for the quick solution just stop by the store we say just order it online but baking sourdough bread depends on my willingness to make a choice outside of convenience i must ransom my time for an end product i may ruin or master if i ruin it i've only lived and learned if i master it well then you're emailing me for my recipe Uh, baking sourdough bread isn't a holy sacrament, but it does remind us, he says, that some things in this world call us to slow our pace, roll up our sleeves, and stretch the dough. Uh, Jesus himself even compared the kingdom of God to rising, uh, the kingdom of God to rising dough. And then he ends this way, sourdough baking invites us to contemplate a pace like this uh, and to rejoice in the mystery of a life-giving loaf-taking shape. So wanted to read this article because so many of us, as Ian and I have talked about so many times on this show, we run at hectic breakneck speed. And Timothy Willard here at the Gospel Coalition wants to challenge us through the example of sourdough baking that sometimes a slower pace, sometimes patience, sometimes a better cadence and a better rhythm uh, is what we need, uh, is a spiritual discipline uh, that we need. Well, coming up next, 
a couple of stories of good news. But first, we're going to discuss uh, next segment, uh, what has actually happened to some good news network. That's coming up next year on The Common Good, AM 1160. Hope for your life. Everybody, welcome back to The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. We're grateful for you joining us today on this Tuesday afternoon. Hopefully you had a great Memorial Day weekend, and now you are back at it. Uh, You can find us on Facebook at The Common Good Radio Show. That's The Common Good Radio Show. Twitter, Instagram, at Common Good Talk. Online, 1160hope.com. Get our podcast wherever it is you get your podcast. Subscribe, rate, and review. Uh, we we didn't even ask. Did you have a good Memorial Day weekend, Ian Simpkins? Was it a uh, was it at all a respite, at all a break? Yeah, a little bit. I uh, I mean, it's always an odd weekend in general. You know, it's a, such a small thing, but I feel like I keep seeing people say Happy Memorial Day. Yeah, yeah. Like it's a memorial. Like it's meant to. I don't know. For me, that's always been a strange. It's I've never served either, and I'm not I'm not closely related to anyone who has. I've you know both my grandpas did and I've had people like cousins, but it is always strangely somber to me. It's, yeah. a, it's a very odd, we did get to, you know, grill out a little bit and the weather held up and that was nice. And we were very grateful for that. And we, you know, we mentioned it on Sunday and I led a devotional on Monday and we took some time to pause. So yeah, it, it felt like almost a normal ish weekend with, gotcha. you know, w- without the actual big kind of party that we typically did. Did you guys do anything? Yeah, we were uh, we were part of the Illinoisans who got out of town. So we actually, uh, my sister in law, brother in law, have a cabin out in the middle of the woods, a, a nice house in uh, Wisconsin. So we drove up there, and ironically, we were more socially distant up there because we were just out in the middle of the woods. But it was really nice to get a different place, just to be somewhere else and feel some normalcy a little I'm bit. Sure. But I'm sure of it. Uh, uh, from the highways, we were not the only Illinoisans making their way up to Wisconsin <laughs> this weekend. I'm sure of it. I'm sure of it. <laughs> And uh, yeah, you're right. It's a good point. Memorial Day is not meant to be celebrated, but it's always like the beginning of summer. So it's kind of this weird dichotomy. Um, All right. So I've got two stories from the Good News Network. But before that, uh, we have played a couple times, I think, in the last month or two, John Krasinski's YouTube web series called Some Good News, which is not connected to the Good News Network. They're two different things. Um so Krasinski's done some unbelievable things with the staff of Hamilton, with the cast of Hamilton, or with his reuniting his cast from the office for a wedding or from other things. Uh, and John Krasinski has done this and it's become uh, a huge deal. Uh, it's become, um, man, what, what word do we use now besides viral in the midst of a pandemic? I'm like, it's gone viral, <laughs> but I don't know what else yeah, to I use. Think, I think you can still use that word. Okay, so it's you see it shared all over Facebook, and it's really kind of been a ray of light in an otherwise time of bad news. That's why he called it some good news. And uh, it was rumored that he was going to be taking a break from it. And now he's catching some heat because uh, he announced he was taking a break from the show. And then news broke that he had sold the series to Viacom CBS for an undisclosed, undisclosed amount of money and will no longer be its host. So there's this whole thing online where some people congratulating him, but other people calling him a sellout. And why'd you profit off this show and really upset? Uh, curious, putting you a little bit on the spot here. As somebody who's a fan of this, I know that you have been. Did it bother you when you read that he sold it? Or are you like, you know what? This is just how things work. Uh, it didn't bother me nearly as much as some of the tweets I'm seeing. Part of me just sort of wished. I thought it was the whole goal of it was to su- simply be this short lived thing 
during this very unique space and time. That was the part that felt weirder to me than him selling it or not. Part of me thinks, yeah, I'll, I mean, knock yourself out. You created it. It's yeah. a thing that gained kind of global notoriety. So good for you. So why shouldn't you be able to capitalize on that in some regard? I think I don't have to agree with it, but I certainly, I mean, some of the backlash online is really, really intense. So yeah, <laughs> big part of me says, yeah, good for you. I don't, really think it's going to be that successful of a show though i think he was a main part of like the charm and magnetism of the whole thing plus it was produced in his house during a global pandemic i feel like all of that was sort of the cocktail that made the thing spectacular it's sort of like you ever watch when what's a good example remember that kid that went viral on youtube after his dad filmed him coming home from the dentist and he was all drugged up yes so I think it was Daniel after dentist or something. It was a hilarious video. And I, was, I pulled it up to show a friend recently. And then I realized the dad has been making videos since then with his boy and they have merch and they have all this and all the other videos. <laughs> they're not horrific, but it's clearly like, man, just let this one viral thing be a viral thing. You don't have to know, yeah. put your kid's face in a t-shirt. So I don't know. That's sort of, that's a little how I feel about this thing. Like it was really, really okay. special for a very unique space and time. And Maybe a show dedicated to good news would be a really good thing, and I hope that it is. Yeah, and part of the charm of it, like you said, was like a sign-in behind him taped to the wall made of crayon. <laughs> right, <laughs> just, exactly. That's exactly. what it is. Well, we are. We want to keep just sharing stories of good news, uh, things to just make us smile. So with the time we have left this hour, I've grabbed two of them, and I need you to do the first one about your hometown or your home area, the Detroit Mower Gang. Why don't you read that one? Yeah, the headline says these Detroit Mower Gang volunteers have been competing to maintain city's old parks. I actually have learned about this a couple weeks ago. It's wonderful. If someone approached you with a giant wrestling style leather and gold belt slung over their shoulder that said grand champion Motown Mowdown, you'd be forgiven for mistaking them for some sort of amateur prize fighter or professional wrestler. This grand champion belt is awarded to whichever volunteer mows the most grass on Detroit's public playgrounds and parks in a 12-hour competition called the Motown Mowdown. The Detroit Mower Gang, a group of volunteer grass cutters and playground repairmen, began their annual Mowathon on May 16th at the Hammerberg Playfield, uh, an abandoned collection of sport fields, swing sets, and meadows on the city's west side. No one owns this particular park. It just fell through the cracks, Tom Nardone of Birmingham said. 50-year-old Nardone said, uh, who started the Detroit Mower Gang in 2009, added, we just tried to keep it alive without a group. You couldn't mow this park with a mower in fewer than a couple of days, which, again, I've known about these guys for a while. There is so much of this kind of entrepreneurial creativity, philanthropic, giving back, rallying together. Like people, I, I know I even rag on Detroit every once in a while. People don't realize like how much stuff like this is happening in Detroit all the time. That's awesome. I just, as someone who loves to lo- mow their lawn as well, just that they have like a wrestling belt is just mm-hmm. awesome. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Here's the other one I wanted to read. Dad drives 1,100 miles just to surprise daughter with 30-minute socially distant birthday lunch. <laughs> That's awesome. Uh, this devoted dad drove more than 1,000 miles round trip so he could spend half an hour with his daughter and wish her happy birthday. 53-year-old Julio Cesar Segura spent 17 hours on the road driving across Texas from El Paso to Austin and back so he could join his daughter for a socially distant lunch on her 19th birthday. The realtor drove eight and a half hours each way, totaling 1,152 miles on May 8th. Um, Segura uh, said 
uh, called his daughter to wish her happy birthday and pretended he was simply out ordering her favorite takeaway lunch, a chicken sandwich from Chick-fil-A. He told me that since he couldn't do much, he wanted to know I'd, what I'd like for lunch and he would send it Uber Eats. So I texted him what I wanted. Uh, he brings me that sandwich for lunch on my birthday every year. So far, he hasn't missed a year. Wow. What Lerna didn't know was that her dad had actually woken up at 3.30 a.m. to get on the road in time to surprise her. Uh, I left my house at 4.15. He said I was missing her and I wanted to give her a surprise. Uh, after placing the sandwich order with her father, Lerma opened the door to her apartment building, expecting to find a delivery driver. Instead, she found her dad standing there. And that story, man, I almost want, you know, that brings tears to your eyes. When you see his picture, he was just there for a short amount of time. Here's here's my parenting advice to people sometimes. Sometimes parenting's really hard, and sometimes it's uh, it's just going above and beyond so your kids know that you love them. And that dad right there is uh, is an encouragement and a challenge to all of us. <laughs> yeah, totally agree, man. That's a good story right there. That's a good story. Well, coming up next, uh, next hour, we're going to talk about face masks and the politicalization of the coronavirus. That's coming up next year on The Common Good, AM 1160. Hope for your life. Coming up this hour, we're going to talk face masks and the politicalization of the COVID-19 pandemic. And then we're going to discuss what does unity in the church look like? That's coming up next here on The Common Good. Everybody, welcome back to The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. Thanks for joining us today uh, on this Tuesday afternoon. Uh, you can find us on Facebook at The Common Good Radio Show. That's The Common Good Radio Show. Find us on Twitter and Instagram at Common Good Talk. Uh, find us online at 1160hope.com. Uh, and our podcast, wherever it is you get your podcast. Subscribe, rate, review. Uh, we're very appreciative of all of you who do podcast and uh, a little uh, rate and a review. Uh, we would appreciate that. Well, there is an article that I believe you posted at our Facebook page, Ian, uh, that is uh, a, yet another disturbing story. This one out of Minneapolis uh, around uh, a man by the name of George Floyd uh, and some police officers. Why don't you catch us up a little bit on what happened yesterday in Minneapolis? Well, the uh, video that is flying around, we're going to play you some audio in a second, actually. And fair yep. warning, it's really, really difficult even just to listen to and twice as intense to watch. Uh, it sounds like there was some some accusation of forgery and then a refusal to get into the car, which resulted in a police officer having George Floyd on the ground with his knee on his neck which uh, led to his eventual passing and the outcry understandably has been like wildfire. It was announced just a little bit ago that the four responding officers involved in George Floyd's uh, have all been terminated. Uh, the mayor called it wrong at every level, wrong on all levels. Uh, I think his name is Jacob Frey or something like that. So there's, it's been a very, very fast acting story, but part sure. of what makes it so tragic is that it's, like in broad daylight and clearly being filmed and the, the disregard that the one officer seems to have for the guy who's literally yelling that he can't breathe is so yeah. troubling and so heartbreaking and so infuriating on so many levels. Like it's like it visibly 
physically shook me when I first watched mm. it. Like I had to like sit down. I hope that doesn't sound melodramatic. It was like no, no, no. a guttural, visceral. So I would love for us just to play about 30 seconds of it, actually, to to hear some of what it is we're talking about. And then uh, Ryan Fromm and I will respond. Yep, go ahead. I can't breathe. Please, the knee in my dick. I can't breathe. Bro, get up, get in the car, man. I will. Get up, get in the car. I can't move. I've been waiting the whole time. Ah. Get up, get in the car. Mama. Get up and get Mama. in the car right. I can't. My stomach hurts. My neck hurts. Everything hurts. Ah. There's water or something. Please. Please. So very difficult to listen to. And like you said, even harder to watch. I'm sure you'll see it all over the news tonight. Um, And this might sound like a strange question, but why do you think that you feel so strongly uh, affected by that? Uh, You should feel affected. We all should feel affected. But you admitted to going, hey, like gutturally deep down angry and affected to speak to us a little bit about those initial feelings that you felt. Well, I mean, just at a human level, man, you're watching someone's life be taken from them and i know that i think part of the heartbreak is knowing just how divided social media is going to become and politics you know i just it feels like this type of behavior has so long been covered up and excused and it feels like my heart breaks for my brothers and sisters of color who have had to endure things like this and it feels like with ever increasing audacity or something i don't know there's there's something about this one in particular where it's like middle of the day people clearly filming there didn't even seem to be a sense of like oh shoot we need we need to be more secretive about this or more <laughs> like yeah. li- literally in the report it it said that the man showed signs of medical distress i was like yeah, the medical distress is the knee on his neck. That's what the medical Ooh. distress is. Like it just felt, I don't know, the whole thing. Yeah. And again, I sometimes I need to, I need to walk away from social media because it can huh. it can sort of start to yep. absorb, you know, but it's just a really really heartbreaking depiction again of what a lot of people have been saying is a very very deeply embedded systemic issue in our nation that is maybe not being talked about as such enough. And so we have this little tiny platform in this little tiny yeah. corner of the internet universe. And I thought at the very least we need to speak out against this and, um, yeah. and do what we can. So understanding it, wanting to tread lightly simply because as you just acknowledged, right, we're two uh, white guys commenting on this, um, but still um, one of the things in the Ahmed Arbery case, uh, the, that tragedy from, couple weeks ago, one of the many things infuriating about that was that it happened a while ago and only when the video came out did anything happen. Is there any part of you that is, uh, while incensed, also encouraged that there was such swift action taken, mayor, police department, this and that, or uh, is that kind of beside the point for you? Right now is beside the point. I don't, Mm -hmm. this to me doesn't feel like a time to be encouraged to me loss of job is the very bare minimum based Mm -hmm. based on the video that I'm watching, not having been there, not having seen what was happening seconds before that. Also knowing that police officers have a thousand other resources in their tool. They could have tased the guy. There's a lot of other options beside a knee on his neck 
in broad daylight to the point that he eventually dies by asphyxiation. Like that to me is so enraging. I don't know. I can't, I can't get to the place where I'm like, well, I'm encouraged at least that they've been fired quickly. No, mm-hmm. it's so much more systemic. It's so much more embedded than that. There'll be so many more excuses made and talking points and pundits and spin. And you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like that it's all of that is probably inevitable. And for those reasons and so many more, I, I, I can't really get to the place of, quote, feeling encouraged just yet. That's literally on CNN right behind me right now. The video is striking to actually see. To hear it is crazy, but to see that that's the first time I've seen the video. Uh, that is really striking, as you said. Uh, protests coming up. I'm just watching the TV here. Protests are obviously a lot of people gathering at the site right now, um, news crews, but just people out and about. So, uh, again, 24 hours later, it's a time to to lament and grieve. But let me ask you, what do we do with this as pastors, as churchgoers, as, um, you know, whatever else, radio guys? Like, what do we do? Because these keep happening, right? We keep seeing things like this and, and talking about them. What does it cause you? What kind of actions does it spur in you, uh, if any? I, I think, honestly, as white, men it mm-hmm. has to be a little less about action and a whole lot more about listening i, I don't think we uh, do a, a good enough job of saying i have a lot to learn about what it's like in your shoes or in your experience or in your community or in your cities obviously i think action is still required and i would say that grief has a natural lead in then to action and then action to some sort of reflection. I think we often tend to be all reflection or all action. And I think that needs to find some equilibrium, but you know, we, we often kind of center the white narrative without even knowing that we're doing it. And I think to decenter that in some really mm. Jesus soaked ways is way more difficult than people realize. You know, I remember hearing a quote years ago that when you're used to privilege, equality can feel like oppression. Like that's real. Like there's a very real mm. sense of like, if you've never sat in those seats or walked them out in those shoes, it will feel like something's being taken from you, even just to listen. You'll you'll find yourself getting more defensive than you realize. And that's why the work of listening and quieting our mouths and decentering our narrative a little bit is so necessary because sometimes we're not even aware of our own like internal gravitational pull. And I think if we're gonna learn at all, if we're gonna agree with any level of like sacred honesty, if we're actually gonna get any better at any of this, it has to start, I think, with listening and then actually hearing what it is that we can come alongside of rather yeah. than like, oh, I need to start this new initiative or launch this new thing. I think it's about come along, coming alongside people who have been, you know, wearing this weight for a long time already. Yeah, that's really well put, man. And I'm just perusing social media. And like you said, it's all over social media right now. So I'm sure if you haven't seen the video yet, uh, you will see it tonight. And um, we wouldn't be we would love no, not love. We would like to hear what your reaction is. Uh, we've got the article up on our Facebook page. And uh, you can comment there at the Common Good Radio Show. Well, coming up next, uh, we are going to jump into the politicalization of the COVID-19 pandemic. Coming up next here on the Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Hey, friends, welcome back to the Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. Thanks for joining us today. Find us on Facebook, the Common Good Radio Show. Online, 1160hope.com. Get your podcast wherever it is you get your podcast. Subscribe, rate, 
and review. And again, we are really grateful to all of those, uh, all of you who do that. Uh, I have to admit, I started doing the open there and I forgot what I was going to say. You ever have those moments where you're just like, "Uh uh-oh, and then it comes, clicks right back. That was scary. We've all been there. Thank you. Uh, Hey, I do want to share some good news about something that we're doing here at the radio station, because during the coronavirus pandemic, we know that so many businesses have had to close their doors or reduce their hours. But we also know that there are still many businesses that are open and serving the public as best they can. If you own or run a business that's open and operating, we want to help you get the word out. So right now, go to 1160hope.com slash open for business. It's all one word, 1160hope.com slash open for business. Fill out the brief form, and we're going to compile all of that information and share it with our listeners. Totally free, no catch. Go to 1160hope.com slash open for business. Um. Face masks. So I never thought when we got into the middle of the coronavirus pandemic, the COVID-19 pandemic, uh, there are different ideas about whether face masks, uh, how effective they are. So I was having a talk with uh, a nurse friend of mine, uh, and she was saying that she thought that face masks were pretty low on, you know, in, in the hierarchy of washing your hands or being distant, whatever. Uh, And so there are medical conversations to have around face masks. Uh, But if you've been following online in the last week or so, what you've seen is, is that face masks are actually becoming uh, a political statement one way or the other. Uh, And nowhere bigger uh, than was that by Britt Hume, uh, news anchor, uh, when he tweeted a picture of Joe Biden wearing a face mask yesterday with sunglasses as well. And Brit Hume wrote this. This might help explain why Trump doesn't like to wear a mask in public. Here's Biden today. Uh, as if like this made Biden uh, kind of weaker or, um, you know, just there was something faulty in that and that there's something admirable when people don't wear face masks. Uh, at the Denver Post, they have an article that says face masks make a political statement in the era of coronavirus. And it talks about this same thing that I was just sharing. Here's my question. Um, I know it's never a surprise, but man, I never saw face masks as a political dividing line in this. Maybe I shouldn't be surprised, but are you surprised by this about face masks? No, I'm not surprised at all. I'm I'm surprised that you were surprised. Really, like this feels like it becoming a political discussion about whether you should wash your hands. Like, okay, no, no, because washing your hands has always been a good idea. Wearing a mask is a very if you're just walking around, it's not obvious who has or hasn't washed their hands. It is very obvious who is or isn't wearing a mask. Of course, of course, that's going to be politicized. And so what is it saying, do you think, for people who. Or like, I'm not wearing a mask. Is it is that um, I, that the disease is not as bad as what people are saying or I'm not scared? It's probably a fear thing, I would think. No, I don't think it's necessarily a fear thing. I think it has a whole lot more to say about who you actually believe, what camp you most strongly okay. subscribe to. OK, so right now, 76 percent of Democrats say they're likely to wear a mask when yep. leaving home to 59 percent of Republicans. And it's that breakdown along the way. And President Trump has been very clear that he's not wearing one out in public. 
Yep. And uh, as Britt Hume's thing said, so I want to broaden this then about a general statement about the politicalization uh, around the COVID-19 pandemic. And we talked about this last week, and this is where I start to feel really naive because I've got to be honest, man, like I am so discouraged. And this is why I told you I I made some major changes to my Facebook page this week because I just don't want to see it anymore. (laughs) I am so discouraged by the politicalization around everything with this face masks to reopening to churches to, um, you know, President Trump saying that he wants an arena full for his uh, Republican National Convention this week. All of it, I, I... I think the breaking point I had this week was when somebody was trying to tell me that uh, Governor Pritzker is trying to take the state down for his own profiting. And you're like, really, is that where we're at here? Um, the lack of nuance and this and that. And and again, I think you're going to say, yeah, you're just naive. But I've, I was actually surprised by how down it got me by the end of the weekend today, this weekend, reading Twitter and Facebook. I felt like it went to a whole nother level are you feeling some of that? Not only that it's to another level, but does it discourage you to the same level or are you and I different there? No, I, I think you and I are pretty different there, to be honest. I, I think okay. it's discouraging, but not for any not to any new level for me. This is this is the weird silver lining benefit of being a slightly cynical person to begin with. Is that <laughs> when this kind of stuff erupts, there's like a mechanism in your brain that goes, Yeah, this is about right. This is this is sort of what I was expecting the divide to me doesn't seem any more polarized than it was two or three or four or five years ago it seems like it's sort of the it's the issue du jour and it's involving a virus that we know little about so of course that elevates all of the tension all of the possibility for you know heated disagreement because it's not just a matter of like which pokemon do you like better but it it is uh (laughs) it is interesting to me that you i mean this is again this isn't really the point of this segment but this is why I think it's actually really, really important, not just from like a sacred social perspective, but also like a neurological one to regularly, fully disconnect from technology and social media. Yeah. Like I think yeah. that the the time we spend on Facebook and Twitter, whether you're left or right, progressive, fundamental, whatever, the result is inevitable. Like you're, it's going to leave you feeling fully despondent at, at some point, which is why we have to walk away every once in a while. And I think that helps kind of reset a little bit, but I'm not, yeah, I'm not really all that surprised by the level of divide and disagreement, to be honest. Yeah. Honestly, the most surprising thing was how I have not been affected by it until at some point this weekend. And I got really down. (laughs) I got really like, and I think here's why I think I got down. I think I saw it seeping into the church more. Like this whole reopen the church, not reopen the church. Yeah. Um, and not even necessarily my church, although it's there, you know, there's people on all sides there. Um, but, but I think seeing it kind of seep more into people that I like and people that I trust as opposed to Brit Hume or, you know, this anchor or that anchor, I think seeing it come into more my realm, uh, man, I just, I got really down and I was like, done, done with Facebook, done with Twitter for good. I'm done. <laughs> and, just, and, I, and are you back on it again today? Well, that well, I, I decided that I couldn't be done with Facebook because of other, you know, aspects that I have for my job, both jobs. Uh, but I told you I went and unfollowed. I'm not joking. When the last night I said I, un- I, I unfollowed 75% of the people on my wow. friend list. <laughs> wow. 
because I wanted to uh, push out some of that. And maybe that's just putting my head in the sand. I don't know. Um, but maybe that is. What would you say? I'll let you close because you seem a lot more level headed about this than I do right now. <laughs> I wouldn't uh, say I'm level headed. The person in your church or in your peer group who's discouraged like me, I think you, number one, you said get away from it some, I think is a really good call. But, you know, when people find themselves discouraged around this topic in particular, just the politicalization of the COVID-19 or, other, you know, the next uh, issue, how would you help people navigate that uh, so they don't remain discouraged and they don't become despondent? Yeah, there's so many things that I would recommend differently based on people's personalities or okay. their depth of experience. I think by nature, social media is not created for like real dialogue. I think it does yep. happen, but it's it's rare. So I think finding actual space for trusted people to disagree and to have those conversations in the context of friendship is super, super important. So find yourself someone who wears a mask and doesn't wear a mask and get on a Zoom call together and like have a loving dialogue. I think that at the very mm. least, you may not get any more clarity, but it'll like heal your heart a little bit because you're like, oh, we can disagree on this and still love each other and still be kind, decent people. I also think this will sound silly and maybe unrelated, but things like meditation and disciplines of prayer and yeah. spending maybe more intentional time in the word, those things do have very real ramifications for counteracting all these like really negative, despondent, internal narratives, whether it's something in your marriage or something on social media, or even just like a story you're making, making up in your head. I think those disciplines are actually really, really helpful in that regard. And just letting yourself be loved by Jesus in the midst of the chaos is, is necessary as necessary now as it ever has been. I think that's, that's important. That's well put. See, I knew, I knew you talked me off the ledge a little bit. I knew you would do that. Yeah, and, I, and I knew you would tell me it was well put. <laughs> uh, kind of along these same lines, I want to I want to have a conversation coming up next about church unity. What is church unity? Not only why is it important, but what does it even look like in this day and age of politicalization and divide? We're going to talk church unity next here on the Common Good AM 1160. Hope for you. Hey everybody, welcome back to the Common Good AM 1160. Hope for your life. Alongside Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. Thank you for joining us today. Uh, one more reminder, you can find us on Facebook at the Common Good Radio Show. You can find us on Twitter and Instagram at Common Good Talk. Uh, find us online, 1160hope.com and our podcast. I mean, Ian, tell us, podcast everywhere, right? Like we have yet to find a spot where our podcast does not exist. I believe that's still the case. No, I actually, I found a couple places this weekend. It's not. Oh, that's, oh, brokenhearted sorry, right there. Sorry to report that, Brian. I don't even know why I was looking, but I... I'm just kidding. It's everywhere. Because I'm thinking, you know, an international space station, they're looking for something to listen to. Boom. There it is. Like, That's just, right. There it is. We're higher than um, that, I'm sure. <laughs> but you could find our podcast wherever it is. You get your podcast. Subscribe, rate, and review. And uh, want to talk a little bit about church unity, especially after our last conversation about this growing political divide in the midst of the coronavirus with this election coming up. But before we do that, Ian is going to tell us one more time today about Thrivent. I would love to. So I'm a Thrivent member, unashamedly. You can learn more at Thrivent.com. If you want to learn about my one of my favorite parts of Thrivent, you can go to Thrivent.com slash action teams. That's sure to inspire and motivate. But the other thing that I want to tell you about is uh, if you're looking for a career change, which I know a lot of people are, you can go to Thrivent.com slash careers. Plus, 
go to their Facebook page or just follow our Facebook page and we reshare a lot of their stuff. They've been providing all sorts of free webinars for how to actually navigate this really weird time we're in. And that's just a that's just a slice of the pie of the kind of content that Thrivent is regularly making available for families and for leaders. And it's just one of the many reasons I really appreciate them and I'm proud to be a Thrivent member. Awesome. Well, uh, church unit, I don't know why I've been thinking so much. It might be because, as I said last segment, the disunity of our culture has been just been really weighing on me. And so I've been thinking a lot about church unity. We all know, you know, John 17, Jesus prays for our unity. Um, and so I just want to have a discussion around church unity. What does it look like and why is it important? So when you think about in church unity, um, what does that even look like? What are we to be unified around and, and how is even unity uh, different from uniformity? I mean, uniformity, pretty bluntly put, is everyone looks, talks, acts, and I would add even believes exactly the same thing. That's right. Uh, if you're a part of a church community that has any level of like real authenticity and honesty, you'll quickly find not everyone agrees on every point of doctrine or theology. And I think that's actually a really good thing. Now you, you probably should have some sort of like tiered system. Like, all right, this is, these are like tier one issues that like, no, this is really central to what it means to be this church or to be this denomination. But like, you know, two and three, we can disagree on those and it shouldn't be awkward and we can have rigorous debate. That's part of what unity I think looks like is the capacity to disagree and to still come together as brothers and sisters, that actually to me is way more compelling a definition of unity than like the absence of disagreement or the Mm. absence of diversity of any kind and unity. I mean, again, the word unity is one that's been used in church traditions for centuries and it's come to mean a number of different things throughout the years, but I do like the juxtapose it against uniformity because it does feel like a lot of times when people, especially leaders talk about unity what they really mean is we just want everyone to act the same. You're like, well, that's not actually unity. <laughs> and that's yeah. where it gets a little tricky. Yeah. In that John 17 passage, Jesus is praying for his followers and it's the end of his life. And he takes the time to pray that they would be unified, that they would be unified. Um, I don't know if you've ever preached on that passage, but why do you think Jesus would even, I'm asking you to put yourself in the mind of Jesus. So if you would do that for me for a second here. Uh, why would Jesus, he could have prayed a lot of things, but he prays for the unity of the church, for the unity of his people. So it's that high on his radar right there. Yep. Any guesses as to if you had to preach that or if you have preached that, why would Jesus be praying for his church to be unified? I I think for so many reasons. I think it has both a formational and missional component. I think when we mm. can actually learn to experience true like spirit empowered unity with people that we otherwise would not spend time with. That is, I think a real beautiful evidence of regeneration and sanctification and growth in the spirit. They're like, wow, I'm actually breaking bread with people that I otherwise wouldn't want anything to do with. That, <laughs> yes. that I think is a real like internal testimony. But I also think when Jesus says things like they'll know that you're mine by your love. I think there is also a missional evangelistic component that, when churches and, you know, we have no shortage of different denominations that disagree on some pretty massive issues. I don't mean to make light of any of those either, but if you can have this like relational ecumenism, this unity, even in spite of your differences, 
I think that sends a message to an unbelieving world that is way more mm-hmm. compelling than most of our apologetics and our inclination to argue hard point to death. Like when they just see like, man, those Presbyterians and those Lutherans and those Methodists all came together to like love the community, love the community and, and feed those in need. There might actually be something to this Jesus thing, even though they all kind of have a, uh, a, a different secondary flag they wave. And I think that that's a really, that's a really important thing to communicate. Yeah. I like that you put a, a spotlight on that, that it will be, a really strong apologetic, if you will, to to people outside the faith, because especially I think of our culture now, we just talked about it last segment. We are so divided on everything. Like when we could be this divided over a pandemic, <laughs> like right. we've got and, and face masks and whatever else. Uh, and man, we're about to enter an election season. It's going to get crazy uh, when there's this much disunity within our culture um, racially economically, politically, what would what more power would there be if the church uh, is unified? So let me ask you this. Let me ask it in a weird way. How would a church know that it's unified? Like what would what would be some tellers in your mind where if you were leading that church, you said, yeah, you know what? We're doing this unity thing pretty well. Oh, man, that's a good question. I don't know that I know how to answer that with any level of depth. I just know that there is, you know, Paul talks about like the single mindedness of Christ. I think Mm. that especially you pair that with part of what he says to the church in Philippi about humility, about looking to the interests of others. I think unity has this, there's a fruit to it where you recognize people are willingly not, not by coercion, putting their own agendas and their own sometimes like decisions uh, in the second seat for the sake of the other, for the sake of the person that they're worshiping alongside. I think it's, modeled in ways of the fruit of the spirit. I think the more that you see that at work, um, the more that we, you will see true unity. And I think it is also sometimes even in real peripheral issues like unity around. Yeah. There's a, there's a small percentage of our congregation that really feels like the font's too small and we are the ones making the decisions and we don't feel like it's too small, but for the sake of serving everyone in our community. Yeah. We could probably bump that up couple of a couple of font sizes like there's just small Mm. ways i think unity is actually practiced that aren't quite as dramatic or obvious but i think that's that's just as important if we're going to actually pursue this like spirit empowered relational unity and i think that's the other piece that it has to be spirit empowered and our own strength we're we're not prone to like put the needs of others ahead of ourselves and to serve the marginal like not, not that's not natural and I think without the spirit empowering that kind of unity, we don't really stand a chance. So it has to also be, I think, a people of prayer, a people of uh, humble surrender. Otherwise, you know, I don't think it's ever going to happen. Yeah. At our Facebook page, I want to highlight uh, a blog post from 2017 by Brett McCracken. We've I think we talked about an article of his last week where he talks about uh, unity. It's entitled Three Reasons Church Unity is Important. I'll just run through his three. I'd encourage you to read these articles. He says, here are just three reasons why unity is a value we must pursue. And interesting, I think, and you touched on all three of these. He says, it is theologically crucial. Jesus passionately prayed that his followers would be one and may be brought to complete unity so that the world may believe that you sent me, he prayed. Uh, so one, it's theologically crucial. Two, uh, it's a powerful witness it says a unified church is one of the strongest evidences hmm. of the truth of the gospel. This is especially true in a world as fragmented and divisive as ours, where countercultural unity among diverse people stands out. 
And he says, number three, he says, there's a common enemy. Highs and lows in church unity uh, tend to correspond to the presence or absence of persecution. Basically, he's saying when persecution is there, you know, you get past some of the disunity and there's an urgency to be unified. Right. Uh, he says when things are comfy for the church, it finds reasons to squabble and divide. So a much longer article. I'd encourage you to go to our Facebook page from Brett McCracken. Three reasons church unity is important. But church, this is going to be really important in the coming months, especially as we continue to navigate this pandemic and an election and all sorts of different things. Well, coming up next, we're going to end the show the way we end every show with some interweb insanity. That's next here on The Common Good, AM 1160. Hope for your life. Here's some weird stuff we found on the internet. Here's some more weird stuff we found on the web. Hey, friends, welcome back to The Common Good, AM 1160. Hope for your life. Alongside Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. That music can only mean one thing. Uh, It is the it's the end of the show, Interweb Insanity, where our producer, Keith Conrad, finds us stories from the Internet. Some of them will make you laugh. Some of them will make you cringe. Uh, but either way, we're going to do this together. So, Ian, uh, you get to travel all the way to India for this first one. Oh, I love India. I hope the story's a good one. Suspected spy pigeon from Pakistan captured along international border in Jammu and Kashmir. All right. I'm interested. A pigeon suspected to be trained in Pakistan for spying was captured along the international border in Katua district of Jammu and Kashmir. Literally what I just read. They said the pigeon (laughs) carrying a coded message was captured by residents in Manyari village in Haranagar sector soon after it flew into uh, this side from Pakistan. Security agencies concerned are working to decipher the coded message the official said the villagers handed over the pigeon to the local police station yesterday a ring was seen attached to one of its legs with some numbers on it and a probe is on senior superintendent of police of katua shal shalendra mishra said first mr samir naga naga not gonna work here anymore anyway (laughs) those city and people names are i'm really glad you got that one Oh, yeah. I'm I'm not skipping any of them ever again. I'm powering through. Oh, I spoke too soon. Look at the first sentence of this one coming up Uh, in England. Llama delivers groceries to elderly during the covid-19 pandemic. Max Max the llama lives in Landisillo, a village in Pembrokeshire, Wales, and he has been delivering groceries. Yeah, I thought it was gonna be worse. Those look like they looked longer than they were. Uh, He's been delivering groceries to older locals during the COVID-19 pandemic. Max is one of the many llamas that live in Pembrokeshire Llamas, a llama rehoming service. Not only does the organization give llamas new homes, it serves as a sanctuary and also allows visitors to stay for a llama-centric getaway. Hey, llama! You think, like, before this llama goes to this getaway, it says, alpaca my bags? (laughs) I was so excited for where you were going to go, and I didn't know. That did not disappoint. That was good. Did you know you could tell by the tone of my voice that was going to be a joke? I did, but I didn't know what it was going to be, so I got so excited. <laughs> I, I kind of didn't either when I started talking, which is scary. It was good. Right, New York. It out. This out of New York. With restaurants closed, rat sightings are increasing across the United States. That actually surprised me because there's like less food for them to yeah. whatever. With restaurants closed or open with limited capacity due to the coronavirus pandemic, a certain subset of those establishments uh, patrons is struggling. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, otherwise known as the CDC, some of you have heard of it, is warning that certain areas across the country are reporting, quote, an increase in rodent activity as rats search for sources of food other than restaurant dumpsters. 
Jurisdictions have closed or limited service at restaurants and other commercial establishments to help limit the spread of COVID-19, said the CDC. Rodents rely on the food and waste generated by these establishments. Community-wide closures have led to a decrease in food available to rodents, especially in dense commercial areas. Oh, rats. All right, the next one's out of Maryland. Family dogs seen on security video leaping out second-story window, walking away unharmed. I saw this. <laughs> did you really? I did not see this. Oh, wild. It's wild. Uh, this dog is quite the daredevil. Uh, home security video captured that moment. A Maryland family's dog took a literal leap of faith out of a second-story window and landed on the ground un- uh, seemingly unharmed and strolling away. Haley DeFilippo posted the video on her Twitter of the family dog Gizmo, Gizmo Peabody Smalls, okay, mm-hmm. leaping from the window for an unknown reason on May 21st. So my dog jumped out a window today, Delafippi's tweet read. Uh, we don't know why he jumped out the window. Gizmo was returned the same day, and the family promptly took him to the veterinarian. Later on, we took him to the vet where he received a good bill of health due to no injuries and was put back on jump status, she said. He's doing great, y'all. Well, there's something you don't see every day. It was one of my favorite endings of any segment you've ever read. Just, <laughs> he's good doing y'all. great, y'all. Like, wow, well, no, <laughs> nothing has sounded more unnatural coming out of your mouth. <laughs> All right, this one's out of Germany. Bolivian orchestra stranded at haunted German castle surrounded by wolves. Mm. Oh, this sounds no fun. A Bolivian pan flute orchestra has been struck, struck, stuck in quarantine on the grounds of a grand 15th century palace outside of Berlin for two months. That's crazy. Over 20 yeah. members of the or- Orquesta Experimental de Instrumentos Nativos have been stuck on the grounds and buildings of Rheinsberg Palace, a castle complete with moat, which has housed generations of German royals. According to the BBC, the group arrived in Germany on March 10th expecting to perform at the something festival the same day (laughs) germany announced its ban on large gatherings swiftly followed by a full country lockdown a week later bolivia closed its borders and the group was stranded at the 600 acre estate surrounded by 23 packs of wolves and haunted by the ghost of frederick the great here's some quotes uh we all joke that frederick's ghost is following us and trying to trip us up Kemed, uh, Kemed Martella told BBC, I don't usually believe in such things, but it does feel as if there are ghosts on the ground. So what was worse there? The If you were haunted by the ghost of Frederick the Great or being surrounded by 23 packs of wolves, like that's terrifying. What if they were surrounded by haunted wolves? Done. Just check out right there. Mm-hmm. <laughs> You're out. <laughs> I don't think they can check out. That's the whole point of the story, Brian. No, I meant like check out of life right there. <laughs> like it, it, Jeez, that got it's dark. Over. Boy, oh boy. <laughs> it's over. Well, we're glad that you joined us today. Come back tomorrow uh, from four until six. For Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. You've been listening to The Common Good, AM 1160. Hope for your life.